Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're never going to be able to have any reasonable conflict with them. There's no such thing as having an argument with a narcissistic person. You're either going to be gaslighted, you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be bulldozed, or you're going to be left. That's the entire vocabulary of conflict. So it is really about a disengagement. I'm Doug Bopes personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to the episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Romani. Dr. Romani is a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at California State University in Los Angeles. The focus of Dr. Romani's clinical, academic, and consultative work is the cause and impact of narcissism and high conflict entitled antagonistic personality styles on human relationships, mental health, and societal expectations. Today on the show, we discuss how to spot a narcissist the biggest misconceptions about narcissism, how to deal with conflict with a narcissist, the truth about things like gaslighting and love bombing, how to leave a relationship with a narcissist, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Romani to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Romani, welcome to the podcast. This has been a long time coming. Yes, it has. Thank you so much. I'm glad we finally made this happen. So thank you for reaching out. I'm really grateful to be sitting here and finally talking to you. Likewise, and I think a good place for us to start is... How does somebody spot a narcissist? So it's, a, it's easier said than done, right? It's so easier to sort of get the long lens and view them as a lab specimen, a person who has this personality. of. But there's signs we look for, right? And they take a minute to show up. That's why I tell people, don't be mad at yourself if you're in a relationship for a year before it dawns on you like, might be. This person seems really narcissistic. And it took me a long time to see it. So a person who's narcissistic has variable, inconsistent, and shallow empathy, and sometimes very little empathy. They're entitled, they're grandiose, they're arrogant, they're selfish, they are dysregulated, they, they, they can't manage things like their anger, um, they are, they're constantly validation and admiration seeking, they take advantage of other people, they envy other people, they can be quite manipulative, they are um they they're motivated by power dominance and control that's really what a narcissistic person is so how do you spot that it's one thing to give you a laundry list it's quite another to say how does this show up there's different ways that it shows up one way is that it is that the narcissistic person will be even in the early what we call the love bombing phase where it's it's on like they're often at their best they're trying to win you over it feels like they hung the moon you'll still see that they get impatient. Um, they can be quite contemptuous or dismissive of a person who works like at a bar or the restaurant you go on a date. They might get really, really um, agitated if the reservation's not ready on time or they're being made to sit in a line or there's some kind of mistake. 
Uh, they get really reactive. If you make even a small critique or even a piece of feedback, they'll just lose it. And you'll say, oh, okay, that's not the charmer I was talking to even an hour ago. They'll often interrupt you while you're talking or not really listen to you. There'll be a sense that even if they're looking at you, it feels like almost like they're looking through you rather than looking at you. They're not sort of like attuned is the word that we would use. There are other sort of other interesting soft signs. If you live in a city, I live in LA, um, where people drive. Narcissistic people drive very dangerously. There's actually research that shows an association there. They'll drive really fast, faster than the conditions would warrant. They'll drive up, up on someone's bumper. They'll haunt. They'll cut people off. They'll give people the finger. So it has like a road ragey vibe. Pay attention to that. That's not just someone's like who has a fast car and they're just like boys in their toys. It ain't that. It's it's a pretty it's a it's a surefire sense that this is a person who might be narcissistic. It's all of these things, that, these little signs. They're looking, you're looking to see, do they compare you to other people a lot? Maybe they compare you to an ex or even someone they work with. They may be dismissive of something you do. So you'll be telling them something you're excited about. Like, hey, babe, that's great. Yeah, that, I mean, I don't get it. Like, doesn't sound like that that would be hard, that hard, but sure. So they, they get their dig in. So there's these signs that get sprinkled early on, but no one's going to walk up. It's never going to be that the most toxic stuff, the stuff that really shows us that someone's narcissistic, isn't going to show up early on. It takes a minute. Like I said, that's why a lot of people need six to 12 months to figure out that this is the situation in their relationship. Wow. Six to 12 months. That's a lot longer than, than I would have thought. And I think one of the, the, the adversities, I should say, in the subject of narcissism, we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, is that the word has become used so much that I think it's become desensitized a little bit in that everybody is now a quote unquote narcissist. If somebody's not interested in them, they're a narcissist. If somebody doesn't answer their phone, they're a narcissist. If somebody fill in the blank, they're a narcissist. You put out a lot of content online on the subject. I'm sure you're observing stuff and just shaking your head at times. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you see out there regarding the subject of narcissism? Yeah, Doug, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's actually disconcerting to me because people who actually are in narcissistic relationships are now who are already prone to self-doubt are now dotting themselves more saying, I don't know, like that's my relationship is this and it's not that it's a lot worse than this. Maybe I'm calling it the wrong thing. Or people are just sort of also being judgmental. So when somebody's genuinely in a narcissistic relationship, it's saying, oh, everyone's saying everyone's narcissistic. So some of the misconceptions are that, you know, that long drew list I gave you of all the things that make up a narcissist, that any one of those things would make someone narcissistic, right? Just being entitled doesn't mean someone's narcissistic. Just being validation seeking doesn't mean someone's narcissistic. So any one of these things, and even like you had said, I thought just thought a person who's narcissistic is sort of full of themselves. Just being full of yourself does not make someone narcissistic. Cheating does not make someone narcissistic. That's a popular one I see online. This fool cheated on me. He's a narcissist. I'm like, this fool cheated on you. I get that. We're going to need to a little bit of a deeper dive for me to figure out if this person's narcissistic. The other thing is that we assume that it's always going to be men. No, there's a lot of narcissistic women out there. There's enough people out there who have narcissistic mothers that I can tell you now there's obviously narcissistic women out there. So we make this misconception. It's always a guy. Now, it's more often a guy, we'll say, it's definitely much more prevalent in men, but it's definitely not the only game in town. And when we talk about the more vulnerable, victimized, resentful, sullen, anxious, 
self-monitoring kind of form of narcissism, like you know, everyone's out to get me, that we see that is equal in men and women. So it's not just um, it's not it's not just men. It is not again. It's not always just the I'm full of myself. Like I said, there's different subtypes of narcissism, and it doesn't always look like the person who sort of got that kind of salesperson vibe, who's walking in and is sort of holding court. That's a very common and almost a very sort of baseline form of narcissism, but there's many forms of it, including malignant narcissism, which can actually almost feel like psychopathy light. There is communal narcissism, which is very much the people who are out there on Instagram. Aren't I the best? I saved a thousand ducks this weekend, but they're actually really an awful narcissistic person, but they get validation by do all their do-gooding. So there's all these subtypes too. So it's not just the braggy kind of arrogant kind of person. So these misconceptions kind of lead people to bandy about this term, to use it as an insult, which is really dangerous because it's a good word. It captures some really important territory in terms of relationship behaviors and patterns. But I mean, the internet's the internet. You don't need to be smart to drive it. So anybody can get in there and say whatever the heck they want. Why do you think there's more male narcissists than female narcissists? I think part of it, a lot of it probably has to do with socialization. So if a girl, child, little girl, shows up with some of the qualities that a boy, narcissistic child was showing up with, she'd be more likely to be shut down. I think that peer relationships are different for girls, but I think a big difference is boys are shamed for emotion, especially negative emotion, crying, anxiety, fear, that we, we still, I still was recently somewhere, like it was recently a few days ago and someone's little boy, it's a little kid, like he's probably four or five, six years old and he got hurt. And the dad's like, come on, dust off. That's enough of that. And I was like, oh man, you've got to be kidding me. Like let the poor kid cry it out. So we, we still, we shame emotion in boys. We shame emotion in men. And as a result, there's a real constriction around that emotional expression that can really build up that sense of shame and insecurity in men because there's really no way to express vulnerability and and if in through that vulnerability comes strength for men but that's not how we're socializing them and we humiliate men who are, who show emotion so as long as that that's the game and we actually do also socialize men to be more assertive to be more aggressive to be strong to play sports in a certain way stand up be a man and be a man is is sort of a the meta meaning there is sort of be gruff, be up in someone's face, none of this, all this silly feeling stuff. Um, so all of that combines that I think that the socialization narrative for men, cis men, hetero men is very, very different than it is for girls. That said, since there's more than enough narcissistic women out there, that there's still that socialization is not going to stop that track for girls. But I think for a girl, that's almost like if a boy and a girl were teetering, the girl may actually, because she might have different kinds of emotionally held peer relationships, her father who might've yelled at the son for crying might actually hold her and hug her. So she might learn a different kind of an emotional regulation and vocabulary. Do you think there's any correlation between being self-absorbed and being a narcissist? Like somebody who posts a bunch of selfies, for instance, like, do you think that they're more likely to be a narcissist? The research is interesting. There's many research studies that have been done that look at the association between the posting of selfies and narcissism. And, and not surprisingly, there's a strong association, right? And so, but here's where we have to be careful. 
just because the two are correlated doesn't mean they're the same thing and doesn't even mean that one causes the other, right? What it means is that one might be a little bit of a marker for another. Show me a narcissist and I'll show you a bunch of selfies or a lot of self-referential, self-absorbed internet content, but not always. And you can also show me someone who posts selfies and I'll say, I don't know, this is a person who loves posting cupcakes or adores their dog or cat. You know, you can look at the nature of the content and all of that, but at some level, we have to be very careful. Just because a person posts a selfie, it doesn't make them narcissistic, even if they post a lot of selfies and they're annoying selfies. But if when they show up as a person, they're well-regulated, they're kind, they're um, empathic, they're self-aware, they're not narcissistic. They just like posting selfies. Yeah, because I've often heard that narcissism can be a spectrum as well. I would love to know your thoughts on this and the difference between somebody who's like narcissistic, like, you know, maybe somebody who likes to take a lot of selfies, excessive selfies, selfies, very self-absorbed, very like all about me, 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 but that doesn't necessarily make them a narcissist. What signs do you look for to tell the difference between somebody who's narcissistic versus like has, has the personality disorder. So the narcissism is on a spectrum, right? And I'll get to the personality disorder issue in a minute. At the mild end of the narcissism spectrum, you have people who are, what you just call it, self-absorbed. They're emotionally immature. They are attention-seeking. They're sort of Instagram narcissistic-y. You know, they're kind of harmless. They're annoying. And there's probably no likelihood of a deep, enduring, healthy mutual relationship with them. It would be a sort of vapid, childish relationship, right? Are they mean? Probably not. At the far end, the severe end of the narcissism spectrum, that's where we see more of the malignant narcissistic patterns, coercion, exploitation, meaning taking advantage of other people, manipulativeness, isolation, a really the menace, power, domination, control are the key dynamics in the relationships. Now, those people at that end, you're looking at patterns that look more like domestic violence, domestic abuse. Um, it can be, it can almost be dangerous. Most people are dealing with folks in the middle. It's not quite the cotton candy of the mild narcissist. It's definitely enough to really sort of, for these relationships to be psychologically exhausting and destabilizing and uncomfortable. But it's people in the moderate narcissistic relationships won't say, I'm scared of this person. They're like, I do get sometimes afraid of what their reaction will be if I'm going to disappoint them, but it's not like it is in the really severe relationships. But then there's the issue of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's what's causing also a lot of the mess in the internet conversation. Narcissistic personality disorder, like all personality disorders, takes a minute to diagnose because a personality disorder is a stable, pervasive, uh, persistent pattern over a long period of time that colors most of a person's interactions with the world, and it tends to be maladaptive by definition. Narcissistic personality disorder probably only affects 1% to 6% of people in the population, depending on the research study you look at. It is a relatively new diagnosis. And when I say new, it came only came into the DSM in 1980. And the problem is, is that in order for that diagnosis to be delivered, a clinician has to have spent time with this person and has to evaluated them. And we need enough time with the person. I, this is what I do for a living. And it would take me a minute. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, this is certainly not a diagnosis I'd generate in the first session. But to be frank with you, I may never generate it because it's also a stigmatizing diagnosis. And not even just because we think that they're not nice people, 
But it's it and rightfully so, the literature suggests it can't really change. So insurance companies don't like it. That that record can follow people through systems who are like, woo, that makes me uncomfortable. I have to be mindful of that as a clinician. So I think there's a lot of people out there walking around with NPD and it doesn't it gets called something else. So to me, there's not we don't even use it well. And I've done research studies where we've used diagnostic instruments. And even then I'm scratching my head when I look at the results. I'm like, whoa, I'm not sure. You know, and so it's a, um, but so I think that this idea, I think personally, if I ran the world and I absolutely don't and never will, I'd get rid of the NPD diagnosis. I don't think it works. I don't think it helps. I don't think it tells us anything and nobody really uses it right in the first place. We talked about at the beginning, how to spot a narcissist. And we've spent the last few minutes talking about a lot of the nuance in that conversation and how, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, black or white. And you also mentioned that it can take like six to 12 months for somebody to fully realize they're in a relationship with a narcissist. Other than like spotting some of these tendencies that you said to look out for with people, like what are some of the symptoms of the relationship if somebody's in a narcissistic dynamic within the context of that? Well, something that's going to show up relatively early in the game and love bombing can last anywhere from six to eight months. But even during the love bombing phase, you're going to see the slipping in of gaslighting. Right. Because ultimately a narcissistic relationship is a power play. That's what it is. And they, their motivation in a relationship is power, dominance, control. Your motivation in a relationship may be love, affection and closeness. You ain't playing the same game. So they're trying to dominate you. And gaslighting is one of the best ways to do that with someone. Right. You destabilize their reality. Then you destabilize them by telling them there's something wrong with them. Rinse, lather, repeat. You do that enough times, a person completely loses, they're, they're completely doubt themselves. Why? Because they love the person. If you started to gaslight me, I don't know you well enough. I'd be like, I'll just turn off my computer. I'm like, I'm out. But if we were close to each other, if you're a family member, if you're a partner, if you're a good friend, I would have a connection. I'd have an attachment and I'd want to continue maintaining that, right? So to maintain that, I'm going to make allowances. And what might I do? Maybe they didn't mean that. Maybe I did put the keys in the wrong place. Maybe I did never say that. Maybe I'm just being too suspicious. And slowly but surely, the person being gaslighted starts to internalize responsibility for anything that's going wrong in the relationship. So that's probably one of the most insidious dynamics, and it shows up early. A gaslighter is testing the water. If you know what gaslighting is and you kind of start stepping away at the relatively early signs of it, the relationship isn't going to last long. But because people are often enjoying the, the love bombing phase, they're enjoying getting to know someone who's charming, charismatic, attractive, confident, like that's not bad stuff. So you have a person who has all these goodies and then they start doing this gaslighty stuff. We sometimes make excuses to keep the good stuff rolling, right? So that's one pattern that'll show up. You'll also see other kinds of these power plays and sort of, you know, unhealthy patterns. They'll be invalidation. They'll make you small so they can be big. Right. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, you went to that school. No, it, it sounds like it was cool. Like, you know, my school, we, in my job, we, in this, I did, you know, so it's always sort of, yeah, I'll acknowledge that, but let me tell you what I did. And so there's a lot of invalidation, even a sense of dismissiveness or minimization. Your problems aren't that big a deal. You think you have problems. Let me tell you about this. You often feel in these relationships, either you're trying to measure up to some weird standard they have, or you're trying to win them over. You're trying to earn them and so like earn their love. And that gets tricky for people who might have an early history of these kinds of relationships. So if a person grew up with a narcissistic or invalidating or antagonistic or kind of toxic parent, 
these patterns are kind of not only sort of very much in your nervous system and in your body, when they start happening again, this is old school for you. And so it's easy to fall into those patterns again. Um, it's not unusual for narcissistic people to betray your trust. They, it might not be as much as that they're cheating on you early in the relationship, but they might still be being shady on social media and they'll come up with all kinds of brilliant or gaslighty excuses. And so you start feeling like you're the one who's paranoid and weird and they continue doing shady stuff. And so you're forever sort of in this haze and never quite able to exhale sort of in the relationship. They're argumentative and they're really good at arguing. It's back to the power play. So some people will say, you know, I used to like getting into a healthy argument, but this isn't that. This is sort of being overwhelmed and someone feeling like they're coming at me like a tidal wave. There's a lot of dysregulation in these relationships. So the narcissistic folks go from zero to 60 in one second. They're very dysregulated with their anger. And that anger comes about when they have an ego injury. And an ego injury can be caused when they don't feel special. So that might be that somebody disrespected them at work that day and you had nothing to do with it. It could be that they didn't get the parking spot they wanted. It could be that there was traffic. It could be that their friend got to go on a really cool vacation and they didn't. You don't know what's going to set off that ego injury. But what we do know is that it returns into rage and a rage that might come at you even if you're not responsible. You're not the one. You're not the reason they had the bad day at work. And a lot of people are like, what is happening? So now you're living in a minefield. You don't know what's going to set them off. You're tiptoeing and you're doing the proverbial walking on eggshells. That was the name of the book, actually. Walking on eggshells is a great book. It's written by um, a woman named Randy Krieger. She, she's been writing in this space for us. She talks more specifically about borderline personality styles. And she, she I mean, it's, it's, it really was a seminal book in the field because you know what Randy Krieger did? She was one of the first ones, especially with borderline where it's harder to do it, to say, whoa, 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 whoa you realize everyone else is adjusting their behavior for these folks. And that's not cool. It was, it was a courageous leap in and people like me were able to come in afterwards and talk about these other personality styles. So do you think there's any hope for somebody who's in a relationship with a narcissist? Let's say somebody's listening to this or they're watching this and they're like, oh my gosh, like I think, I honestly think I might be in a relationship with a narcissist. Is there any conversation that can be had with, with this person? Can a narcissist change? or is the best way of survival to get out? So it depends on the person. Doug, this is where it gets really complicated. And my approach to this has always been to have no agenda to say, well, if you don't get out, then it's really gonna always be a nightmare for you. It's not true, right? Healing's an inside game, right? It's something we can take responsibility for in ourselves, even if we're in a mess. That you know, healing is possible even when getting out is not, is what I tell folks. There's a lot of people, reasons people feel they can't get out of these relationships. There's the complex trauma bonded dynamics, but there's also, they still love the person for how difficult it's been. They still feel a sense of love. They feel a sense of loyalty. They have a sense of fear of if I leave this, what if they turn around and become a nice person for the next person, or there's still some stuff I like here. I don't want to be alone. There is practical factors. Uh, practical factors could be money, a shared home. You might have kids together. And then there's cultural and religious factors. People feeling like, I, especially if it's they're married, they feel like, okay, I can't split up with this person. I'm in it with them, whatever it may be. No reason is a wrong reason. There's no judgment or shame around the reasons. Your reasons are yours and they're real. And I think this idea like, oh, that's just because you're lame and you're a doormat. There are no doormats. These things do such a number on you. And if you still feel love for a person, you still feel love for a person. No one else gets to tell you you don't. 
So what the hope then becomes, and it's all to me predicated on radical acceptance. You got to see this thing for what it is and know it's not going to change. And what tiny bit it changes, it ain't going to be enough to make this a healthy relationship. Right. And so I can put, you know, listen, I could put crown molding in my house. Don't make it a mansion. All right. Makes it a house with crown molding and you, they might change a little bit. It doesn't make them into an empathic, warm, loving kind of a person. And so not the way somebody needs. Now, some people will say, listen, this fool went to therapy and they don't scream as much and it's still not deep. And I have to radically accept that's not what I'm getting in my life. But radical acceptance is that this person's not going to change or it's not going to change enough. The relationship's not going to change. The patterns in the relationship aren't going to change. And that this is going to be hard and it will still hurt even if they say things to you. So, but over time, some people say, you know what? We live in parallel here. You know, we just shot a video today about this idea that some people are fully mentally out, but they're physically in. Is it optimal? Eh, I mean, who's to argue, right? They'll say there's reasons I'm staying in this. If they left tomorrow, I'd be thrilled, but I can't, I can't be the one who pushes the accelerator on that. And I'll tell you, there's people who quote unquote, get out of narcissistic relationships, but they're mentally still in. It's almost like being a dry drunk, right? They're still mentally in the game. And so they're scanning and social media and who are they with and what are they up to? Some people are in the relationship like, I don't give a damn what happens to this person. I'm out. So radical acceptance is really a key, but it also fills people with grief. They're like, I love this person. I thought we were going to grow old together. I thought this, I thought that. Having to give up on all that is hard. Now for the people who leave, it's a different path forward and it ain't all rainbows and, and moonbeams. In some cases, narcissistic people don't like to be left. Let's call it that straight. They do not. They have high rejection sensitivity. So somebody leaves them, there will be hell to pay. So there might be what we call post-separation abuse. The narcissistic person may stalk them on social media or even literally the narcissistic person may pass rumors about them. They might do us what we call a smear campaign. They may enlist what are called flying monkeys. They talk smack about the person who broke up with them to anyone who will listen. And some of those people will start to believe it. So you'll feel like your entire support system crumbled overnight. So that's, so these things happen where you think like, I was just trying to break up for them, but now my whole life is kind of a mess. And so people will sometimes feel as though, what have I done? This is, this is worse now. Some people will break up and feel a sense of regret. So when the narcissistic person hoovers them back in, they're vulnerable to it. And so there, it, it's a complex landscape, even if people leave. In the grand scheme of things, Doug, if someone could leave, and be narcissist free or get rid of this person and really work, do the work of themselves, they will feel better, but people can heal while they're in these relationships. I've seen it happen. It happens all the time. I always say it's like, you're still walking, but now there's a bit of a slope on the walk, but it can be done. It's not the same, but there's similarities between this type of relationship dynamic and then being in a relationship with somebody who's an addict, right? Where you have to gain this radical acceptance. Like you said, you have to take care of yourself. You can't let the relationship destroy you. You can't create this you know, false idea of what the relationship could be. Like you have to accept it for what it is. And if things get better, awesome. But if not, like you have to accept like it's not your fault. And I've seen people completely self-sabotage in when they're in relationships with somebody who's an addict and it, and it ends up impacting their own mental health, their own life. And the same thing I would imagine happens in a narcissistic relationship and probably it's, it's it, I would imagine it's more severe. How can somebody prevent that? 
like if if they're if they've gained radical upset, acceptance of the situation, what are some things that they should be doing on a daily basis, weekly basis? Again, I know you're not about like this one size fits all approach, but generally speaking, what can people do to make sure that they're not sacrificing their mental health? We will get you back to today's episode with Dr. Romani in just one second. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Sabrina Zohar, who hosts Do the Work podcast. Do the Work is a no BS, growth-minded online community, podcast, and coaching platform for people seeking growth in their dating lives and personal relationships. The Do the Work podcast is in the top 0.5% globally and had over 6 million downloads in its first year with a 4.9 star rating on Apple and Spotify. Let's face it, finding a love that matches your self-worth takes work. And the Do The Work podcast offers clear and actionable steps toward doing just that. The podcast covers topics that helps listeners understand anxiety in dating, as well as identifying certain patterns that are holding them back from finding love, and of course, talking about confident ways to respond to confusing situationships and more. Do The Work is more than just dating advice. It's support for everyone searching to come back to their authentic selves, and it empowers listeners to make relationship choices from a whole, worthy, and confident place. Go to sabrinazohar.com to find out more about Sabrina and her work, or check out her podcast, Do the Work, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. So once a person hits radical acceptance, and listen, not everyone has access to therapy, but if you do, be in it, and ideally with a therapist who gets this stuff. Because just simply having that, that validating space with somebody who's a trained ear can make a huge difference. And you also want to be shoring up your other social supports. Something that makes us very gaslightable is if in, in all the relationships we're in, our reality is being denied or twisted and we're being told there's something wrong. It's all our relationships are destabilizing. That makes it tricky. But if you have validating spaces in your life, for example, a strong friendship network or trusted colleagues, just continuing to cultivate that because the narcissistic relationship is like a black hole. It sucks all of you into it, all your resource, all your bandwidth, all your, all your thoughts, feelings, everything. If you can, radical acceptance means thinking, I am not, I'm no longer bringing my A game to this relationship, right? I'm going to have to cultivate these other spaces in my life because these people see me, I see them. It's a mutual and reciprocal relationship. You get to experience that two-way road that is a relationship. You know, again, like I said, being in, in therapy is also a big one. The other thing is, is practicing realistic expectations. Radical acceptance and realistic expectations sort of go together hand in hand in the sense that the radical acceptance sort of navigates the realistic expectations where, where it's sort of things like the person who is about to have their birthday and things, they know that the narcissistic person, it's hit or miss if they're going to celebrate it right. If this matters to you that much, set something up with your friends. It could be a lunch. It could be a dinner. Like you need to do you. I, I, I say to people, I'm never going to be able to take away the hurt while you're in this relationship, but I would like to take away the surprise. And I have clients who week over week will say, you're not going to believe what he did. And I, I look at them. I'm like, I absolutely believe what he did this. I would have set a clock that this is what he would have done. And we'll even play a game because they'll say, I'm going to be doing this and this when I see my mother or narcissistic mother, narcissistic partner. I say, here's how it's going to go down. I'll make a bet with you. Won't bet stuff like a coffee or like Starbucks or something. I'll say, I'm right. You buy me Starbucks. I'm wrong. I buy it for you. I got nothing but Starbucks gift cards in my house because I am always right about this. And it's not that I'm some kind of damn genius. It's that's the, and I want to lift a surprise. But the more we play that game, they're like, I saw it and I didn't react to it this time because the surprise leaves you feeling worn down and let down. You're like, I can't believe he did it versus 
It's more of like, here we go. You know, that's a very different nervous system stance. Another other thing is also to learn your nervous system. We might be fighters, we might be flighters, we might be freezers, we might be submitters, we might be fawners. Know your, your sort of nervous system repertoire. How do you respond to those threats? Because those often predominate. Some people feel shame, like, why didn't I say something? Their freeze response kicked in. And it's learning that self-compassion of you were trying to keep yourself safe and what felt like a threat. It is about bringing self-compassion to yourself. But doing these things sort of all together, engaging differently, you might say, well, that's not a relationship anymore. I don't disagree, but some people don't have a choice. But now it clears out a space for them to at least not be pummeled all the time psychologically. I imagine like one of the other challenges of staying in a relationship with a narcissist is dealing with conflict. And like you can do the nervous system work, you can talk to a therapist and that all I'm sure helps tremendously. But how does somebody deal with a conflict when you're saying like a big part of how the relationships erupt with the narcissist is how the narcissist responds to stress and turmoil in their life. What, what, what advice do you have there? It's, it's a tough one, right? Because you're never going to be able to have any reasonable conflict with them, right? There's no such thing as having an argument with a narcissistic person. You're either going to be gaslighted, you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be bulldozed, or you're going to be left. That's the entire vocabulary of conflict. So it is really about a disengagement. You know, as they go on and on. It's almost like you, you, you uh, there's a concept I have in my new book. I call it soul distancing. So while they're yammering on, you're almost like envisioning like, okay, my body is present. My soul is over here. I got it protected. I'm not engaging with this. And they're going to yell and scream and yell and scream. Now, listen, listen, different people's nervous systems can put up with this in different ways. And, um, but there's no, when a person's gaslighting you, the best you can say is like, listen, we're having different experiences here. I, I mean, that's all I got. It's going to make them more frothed up, but that's much better than you doubting yourself. Just you are having a different experience. I thought you remembered it this way. You, I remembered it that way. That's it. That's a different experience. And so there are phrases you can have that can help sort of, at least on your side, put your punctuation mark on it. They're not going to let it go though. They're fighters. They're built for the fight. And if you're not a fighter, this is a really, really bumpy road. The other thing, though, is they don't just fight. The other thing narcissistic people do is they withhold and they withdraw. And for people who have abandonment fears, that can be really, really hard. When this silent treatment is a very, very common tactic in narcissistic relationships. I would love to know like your definition of gaslighting, because I think much like narcissism, gaslighting is used often, right? <laughs> It's like, you're gaslighting me. And it's like, no, I'm just holding you accountable, you know? So what what is the true definition of gaslighting? How does somebody know that they're being quote unquote gaslit? Right. So gaslighted is a tactic, okay? And it's a tactic that's used to maintain power, dominance, and control in a relationship by destabilizing the other person. And this destabilization happens by denying the reality, perceptions, experiences, memories or even knowledge of the other person and then doubling down and telling that person there's something wrong with you. I never said that. What's wrong with you? Do you have some sort of mental problem that you make some stuff up? So you see, it's not just that I never said that. It doesn't stop there. It's you have a problem. You got to have both pieces. And this is where people sometimes confuse lying and gaslighting. They're not the same thing. Lying is lying, right? Lying is I wasn't there and you were there. Okay. 
a gaslighter will take that and say, I wasn't there. And you know what? I feel like I'm in the relationship with the CIA. You are the most paranoid, weird, needy girl. Like I'm over this. That's, di that's a whole different game, right? The liar is like, I wasn't there. They don't go on to that second step. Gaslighting is a repetitive kind of emotion. They do it over and over again, again, with the, with the goal of completely dominating someone. So they're fully almost on board with their, with the narcissistic person's point of view. That's what it looks like. It's not these, it's not these other things. It's not a difference of opinion. It's not holding someone. It is, it is attempting to hold someone accountable for something they didn't do though. That would be gaslighting. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very problematic tactic and not just because someone gaslights doesn't make them a narcissist, by the way. All narcissistic people gaslight. Not all gaslighters are narcissistic. You know, they may just be people who are just obsessed with power and that's their thing, which probably makes them narcissistic-y, but we wouldn't know until we sort of peered under the hood. So um, that's what gaslighting is. And many times as gaslighting proceeds, many proceeds, many times the gaslighter will literally twist it to a place where they're the victim and you're the perpetrator and you're thinking, and people believe it. Like I'm a bad person. And that's why many people in narcissistic relationships feel like they're bad people. Like how can somebody like help take the power away from a narcissist? I've often heard that narcissists are addicted to validation, whether it's positive or negative. What, what tactics can somebody use to not give the person they're in a, a relationship with, if they're a narcissist, that much power over them? Don't engage. It's that simple. Don't engage. So when they're yammering on about something, because sometimes what we do is we'll engage. In fact, I have an acronym. I tell people when you're with a narcissistic person, don't go deep, don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, and don't personalize this. So when they're telling you something, we'll sometimes want to say, no, that's ridiculous. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. and then you're like, okay, okay, cool. Yeah. And then you sort of, you really learn these techniques for disengagement because like I said, there's not a lot of there there in these relationships. You're basically, they're holding court. I always say like a relationship with a podcast, a relationship with a narcissist is like listening to a podcast. It's like, you know, they're just blah, 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 blah. The difference is you can't change to another show. And so it's just, you're sitting there, you're holding court. And if you view it that way, you can, I mean, you can do mindfulness work. You can, I, sometimes when I'm with a narcissistic person and they're yammering on around me, I will listen to part of what they're saying. And then I'll just sort of, if I'm not in a position to be able to do something else, I'll, I'll sort of do a mindful kind of what I call a sweep of the room. I'll describe the room to myself. I'll do a five, four, three, two, one mind. I'm, I'll do something to sort of ground myself. I've just stopped listening to them. There's just noise at that point. But that's really the main way you can take away their power. There's no direct route in. It's taking away the, you know, if you want to stop a fire, take away the oxygen. And so if part of the, the game here in surviving this relationship is radical acceptance of the situation, I would imagine part of that is having compassion for the narcissist. As hard as it is, like being able to understand like that this person is really struggling and this person is not as confident as they appear. How can somebody get to a place where they're having compassion for a person that treats them like garbage? You got to go through the whole healing process first. This is very much of make sure you've fully gotten your seat on that lifeboat and your stuff put away, and then you can work on it. Make sure you're also off the mothership, and then, and only then. Because most people who've been in a narcissistic relationship have heaps and gobs and mountains of compassion for this person, far more than they had for themselves. 
and it got tested time and time and time and time again. And even when the whole thing falls apart, many people still will be having compassion, like, well, they had a tough childhood or, you know, things haven't gone their way or they feel hollow inside or some terrible things have happened to them or whatever it may be. Okay. There's an exercise I also talk about in my book, which is called the exercise of multiple truths. I say, okay, I'll do this with clients. Let's get out a piece of paper. And I said, I want you to write down everything that's true about this relationship. And as you write all that down, it goes from everything from, I love this person. I'm scared of this person. This person makes me anxious. I love spending time with them. I'm really attracted to them. We have so much fun together. They're so mean to me. When you start stacking it all up, you start to see how messy this is. Just because you have compassion with someone. See, the way the narcissistic person is like, oh, yeah, you care about me so much? Then stop doing what you're doing, right? They'll twist it. You don't need to share the compassion out loud with them. We can have compassion for people and leave them. We can have compassion for people and disengage from them. We really can. Because it is it, what, what it, it ends up being is that either you're signing up to be a source of supply for them forever, you know, which is in essence, you're, you're just sort of giving up on yourself or you're saying, I hope this person gets the help they need or pursue or gets it together, but I am no longer going to be an audience to this. And because the narcissistic people throw such tantrums when they're being rejected or perceive they're being abandoned, a lot of people say, well, that was mean of me to leave them. I'm like, what's your option? Your uh, door number two is you forever sort of stay in psychological servitude. And like, I don't want that. But there's no version of this where the narcissistic person's not upset. And so I do truly, I think having compassion and empathy in all of our interactions is absolutely central to making this world a better place and not the mess that it is right now. But being compassionate and empathic doesn't mean giving in to what they want. It means knowing that I, I uh, that being abused is not a way of showing empathy, right? Continuing to to engage in the relationship, knowing that that's what they're capable of. And when they say things like, but give me six months, I'll go in therapy. Say, I'm going to go do me for six months. You go into therapy. No matter what, it's going to be good for you. And, and then if you want to talk to them in six months, that's on you. But waiting around and holding space for them while they're doing the change, never a good idea. You, you talked about that um, there's a lot of people that can't leave a narcissistic relationship. They're just, unfortunately, they're stuck in it and they have to make the most of it, have this acceptance that we've been talking about. But then there's, a, there's also a percentage of people that I think could likely just leave, you know, if they just knew what to do. Like, what's the blueprint? If somebody's like, you know what, I think I can leave, like, what should I try and do? So here's the thing. I, I'm going to leave the malignant, severe narcissism off the off this conversation because I think that raises a whole set of specter of issues around stalking and maybe even escalation of abuse. Let's take them out. Let's stick with the moderate to mild. One thing you got to remind yourself is there's no version of me leaving this where they're okay with it, right? So I think what people want is like, I want to do this so they'll, like, it won't be crazy. It's going to be crazy, okay? So you're going to have to, that's another thing you got to radically accept. This is not going to be a calm, one of those rom-com moments where you're like, yes, well, sometimes we have to go our separate pathways is never going to happen here, okay? So that's number one. And you almost have to gird yourself for the terrible things they're going to say to you because they're going to say terrible things to you. And that might mean that you go to therapy first. It might mean that you, as soon as this is done, you block them on your phone for a while, whatever it is, so you don't have to get 
that incoming messaging is 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 a big one. You want to have your ducks in line. So let's say you live with this person. You don't want this to be like, and we can sort of, let's talk this out and then we can stay in the same place for a while. No, you can't. That might be a friend's house, family member's house. You've got to have, you got to have the exit strategy all sorted out before you have this conversation. If the relationship has lasted long enough, some people have the, the they take the stance of, Maybe I need to give this, I need to throw the Hail Mary pass. Maybe we need to um, go to couples therapy. It's tricky. If you do not have a good couples therapist, and I would say you need someone who's been doing this for a while and who gets narcissism, which is not, a lot of couples therapists like to think both people are 50% co complicit. It's not true in these relationships. So a bad couples therapist or one who doesn't get narcissism could make this into a bigger mess. If you have a great referral or you know someone, this could actually be an exit. Some people will say, at least I know I tried this. It's probably not going to make a difference. But I do think that making sure you have supports, whether that's through therapy, whether that's through friends, having some sort of, if you live with this person, you have some sort of exit strategy in place, being prepared for the onslaught. Because I think people, I, I, I was working clinically with a woman and she's like, I, at the time I leave, I just don't want it to be that bad. I'm like, it's going to be that bad. So if that's what you're waiting for, you're going to be in this relationship for 60 more years. And so you've got to understand that there's no, it's like trying to merge onto a really messed up freeway. At some point, you're just going to have to be like, I hope someone lets me in. That's the situation. That's the blueprint. And it's, it is having support and it's being realistic and it's, um, and then understanding it's just simply not going to be easy. And how does somebody rebuild their self-esteem after it's been crushed in a narcissistic relationship after they exit it? I think that, that that there's multiple things that can happen. I think first of all, it's actually to reacquaint yourself with yourself. I tell people, if you've been in a narcissistic relationship, if it's been a year or longer, if your relationship has lasted, whether it's 12 months, 12 years, you know, 60 years, give yourself a year off from all relationships. Nothing, no sex, no dating, no nothing. A year by yourself. And the reason for that is this. Whatever patterns got set in that relationship, or maybe that existed from childhood, they're still raw and the self gets lost and you're not going to find yourself on someone else's time. That's, that's a solo journey. And so it is a chance to sort of cut to the heart of any trauma bonded patterns, you know, to, to go through a year of anniversary dates and all of that and come up, you know, establish your new rituals and routines it's about figuring out what it is you like. I always say people who come out of narcissistic relationships don't even know what temperature they want the thermostat at or don't even know what they want on their pizza because every decision was kind of taken away. Figure that out. What do you want on your pizza? It could be the most weird jacked up thing you've ever eaten. That's your pizza. Because what happens after a year of doing that, you're a little bit more in your body and you're a little bit more in your feelings. So when someone new comes around, you're in a better position to be discerning. So when that year turns off, it's almost like, okay, I'm not, all the dating apps are being deleted. No, 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 no. And let's say you do meet someone worthy. You say to them, listen, I'm coming off of something and I'm taking a year. We can be friends, whatever. And that person's like, well, hell, I'm not waiting on you. This wasn't your person. This year is essential. Now, people might say, I was only with the narcissist for three months. Then you got to take three months off. Under a year, it's the number of months in the relationship. Over a year and longer, you got to take the year. You need that much time. I call it a cleanse. It takes that time to get their voice kind of out of your head. And some people will say it takes longer than a year. Many clients, once they start a year in, they're two, three years in. A big part, from what I understand, of, of healing from past relationships and healing in general is finding a healthy relationship and changing patterns and, and, and just changing how you view the relationship dynamic. 
let's just say they've done the work from and they're, they're, they're they've moved on from their ex who was a narcissist and they're looking to re-engage in the dating world looking to find a, a new healthy relationship what's the best approach for that to make sure that they're doing it effectively so you know in that let's say they took the year six months however long they had to take right in that process they've figured out who they are you know they, they learn like what are their what are their no-fly zones? What are the things that are uncomfortable? Like you, you have to, we are not taught to do that. I always call it an excavation. You know, when we think about how an anthropologist does an excavation, or an archaeologist, I should say, does an excavation, they don't just take a backhoe in and just sort of dig a ditch. They take tiny little shovels and tiny little brushes and tiny little tools and delicately, and that's kind of what you're doing. You're kind of excavating all these pieces of yourself and putting it together, sometimes for the first time. Once you're back out there again, it's a lot of it is moving slowly. It's even after the day, instead of just coming home and flopping in bed, it's like sitting with it. How do I feel this in my body? How do I emotionally feel? What are my thoughts about this? Like really, really be with it. And I, you know, listen, the, the thing I say is folks who are coming out of narcissistic relationships, who give themselves the break, who sort of start to re-individuate again, are more likely to throw away fish that are big enough to keep, right? So they might sort of overcorrect a little, I'd rather that than the other direction. And then I think people slowly start to learn the fine art of compromise. I'll realize like somebody saying that <laughs> they don't want to have Mexican food for dinner doesn't mean they're dominating. It means like they may just simply not want Mexican food and you can come to a compromise, right? So it's the, you know, and that's why those sounding boards you've cultivated become an important space as well. Therapy becomes a great space for that too. But it, it is, it's about moving slowly and Letting people know. I mean, one of the tricks of the narcissistic relationships is they move fast. Narcissistic people will meet someone and be engaged in three months. Like that's a signature move, right? It's too fast. And that speed means that the other person in the relationship cannot process what's happening in real time. So bad decisions are just being made. It's like if somebody tried to pressure sell you something, right? You tend not to make the best decision. So in this case, if if person's like, I just you know want to let this unfold, and they and the person's like, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Say, I just want to take this at my time, and the person's like, that's not working for me. Again, not your person. You know, if they can't hear that need for like, say, I want to keep spending time with you, I really do, but I really want to keep living in my own spot. I need that for a while, and they're like, nope, not your person, because if they're going to dominate about that, then you have now set the tone. And some people feel bad that they're going to lose someone over that. But I'm like, nah, you knew where this was going to go. Let's go to the other side of this and talk about early stages when they're dating somebody. And where it's, I would imagine, much easier to walk away from somebody that could potentially be a narcissist. Is there certain things that somebody says to somebody early on in dating that they're like, if you're telling them, like, if, if somebody says this to you, like they should run, like what would that be? I don't, I mean, I think it's actually what might matter more than what they say is how they say it looking for patterns like contempt, dismissiveness, snobbery. If they're saying a lot of dismissive things about other people, if they make barbs about groups of like, you know, they say things ideologically racist, racially or social class wise or anything, something that's not aligned with your values. That's often the, that, that, that's a big one. And people say, well, maybe we just have different values. I'm like, can you live with that? Because there's some, yes, I mean, it could be the kind of thing where you might have opposing views on something that's not core to you, 
right? Like they might have a belief of a social policy. Like, I don't know that I agree with that, but I, whatever, like it is what it is. But then there's things that are core issues to you. And if that's a core issue that's coming up, a core value difference, they may be poking and testing. Because remember, these relationships are about indoctrination. So they'll sometimes deliberately offend to see if you step back or if you kind of ha 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 and kind of awkwardly laugh because what they're realizing is you're a ripe target. So when somebody's really saying something that puts you in your back foot, I'm like, no, that's not cool. The, the, the good money would step away at that point, honestly. And, um, but you are looking for those kinds of patterns and you're looking for things like comparison. You're looking for somebody who critiques everyone they meet. They make they make fun of somebody's appearance. They make fun of they make a, a rude comment about a family in the restaurant. They're always criticizing everyone they work with. That kind of stuff's a problem. If they keep comparing you to people. That's a problem. Those are the things you're sort of looking for. If they want too much time with you too, that in that kind of the love bomb, especially actually in the more severe relationships, is it's that whole rom com like let's spend every day together for a week. Hell to the no. That is a huge mistake. So if somebody's saying, let's spend all this time together, say, I love spending time with you and I really look forward to the next time, but you know, I got I got stuff to do. That sort of stealing of the individuation, a lot of people romanticize that as like they think I'm so cool, like we're just gonna spend 72 consecutive hours together. I'm like, this is not, this is not a good idea. And so that breathing space lets us individuate. It becomes really, really important. And narcissistic people will really want to often get in there. And if you say, you know, I need to, I kind of need to do my own thing. Oh, I, I guess you're, I guess you're not feeling this. And your, your, your best play would be like, oh, I'm feeling this just fine, but I'm not, a, I'm not your 24 seven person that might get away. Th that might be a way to get rid of the low hanging fruit early in the game. So you hear a lot also about attachment styles. And a lot of times when people are quote unquote, anxiously attached, they want the relationship quickly. They want to get in like super quick. So maybe they get overly excited about meeting somebody so they can get into this relationship quickly. What's the difference between somebody who's just truly excited about the person or anxiously attached or fill in the blank versus somebody who's like a, a narcissist that's love bombing somebody? A anxiously attached person would hear your feedback about slowing down and wouldn't rage at you. If anything, they might get a little bit sad or like, I'm sorry, this is just my like, ah, you know, and there'd probably be a vulnerable share. A narcissistic person would get mad and they would immediately threaten abandonment. They're like, I guess this isn't working for you. Bye. It would be that. It would be much more abrupt. It would be much more controlling. It would be much more cold and callous. An anxiously attached person would actually become quite vulnerable under that same kind of um, challenge. Let's just say somebody's listening to this or they're watching this and they're they're just hopeless. They're in the depths of despair. They're either in a relationship with a narcissist or they've just left one and they're just completely broken. What kind of advice would you give them if they ran into you? Let's just say they came up to you at a, at a book signing or in a coffee shop. What would you say to them? So assuming that there's somebody who's left the relationship, I would say that this is a grief like no other. And like any form of grief, you got to let it run through you. There is, you know, we all think we're sort of bigger than our emotions. And one emotion we're never going to be bigger than is grief. You've lost something. And what you've lost may not be this really unhealthy relationship, but you've lost the narrative you had around it, the hopes you had for it, the good moments that were in it. Grieve those moments. Because, I mean, listen, the reason, the one friend we have in, on all of these experiences is time. Right. The human, the human soul, the human heart are very resilient little organs and they do come back, but you do need time. And so there is a period of grief. 
But I do also tell people, don't be shy. Write down every terrible thing that happened in the relationship. Write it down. Because when you feel like, what have I done? Or how can this happen? Look at the list and say, maybe I dodged something here. And I've had clients where they said writing that list was actually a bit overwhelming for them. Say if it's overwhelming, you put it down. But if you can write all that down, it makes a huge difference to say, okay, this was the right call. Or even if it happened to you, this was the right call. Make that list with friends too, if you need to, because they probably observed a lot of this stuff too. If you can get into therapy, get into therapy because there's more stuff to be dug up here. There's a reason maybe this lasted so long or got so um, toxic. What were the stories you told yourself? I mean, we have to we have to look back and say, how what didn't we know? Some people say, you know what? Wasn't even what I told myself. I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know this narcissism thing was real. And I had no idea what this was about. I had no idea someone who claimed to love me could do this to me. Love means different things to different people. And so I think that when you, again, it's, it's grief. It is radical acceptance. It's recognizing this is going to take a minute. It's writing down the bad stuff and recognizing there's a reason I left. And the other tell, thing I tell people to write down, again, it's also in the book, is not just the bad stuff, but write down those little things that you loved, but you gave up for the relationship. It might've been keeping Oreos in the house. It might've been watching films with subtitles. It might've been a Thursday night thing with you did with your friends, whatever it was, there's some things that are going to come back into your life. And people say, Oh my gosh, I can actually do this now. And I can do that now. And, and lean into that. Say, I couldn't do this before. I remember one person I worked with, she was very, she was a malignant narcissistic um, partner, a long time they were together. And she was getting ready to go on vacation. She's like, I don't know. I kind of feel sad. Like here I am, this older person traveling alone. I said, let's do a little game here. I want you to reflect on what it was like to travel with him, how he'd scream at you, scream at the gate agent, be angry about how crowded the airport was. Like, oh, look at all these disgusting people traveling in their sweatpants. Like he was horrible. He'd be angry if he didn't get the seat he wanted. He'd be angry if there wasn't enough space in the luggage bin. I want you now, when you go on this trip, to pay attention to how different it feels. Just going through the airport. She texted me when she got to the other side of her trip. She said, game changer. She said, I was so aware of what it was like. Like I was nice to the TSA guy. And it was, I kind of enjoyed getting my little coffee and sitting at the gate. And, and she said, I finally got to have the aisle seat, which he always took for himself. And I was able to go to the bathroom. She said, they were all these little blessings. And all of a sudden I was, she was like, this is good. We find it where we find it. Final thing, do you think that people, uh, there's certain people that just tend to be attracted or attract narcissists based on their past relationship history, maybe based on their childhood? Or do you think once you, you know, do the work, really work on he healing yourself and understanding yourself that you start to attract less and less of people like that, of, of people like that? Everybody's attracted to narcissistic people. I do. And I think the people, charm, charisma, attractiveness, confidence, like you really would be going off script to be like, no, I'm looking for someone who is socially awkward and uninteresting and really lacks confidence, which actually is what I look for. And so I'm like, you're my person. I'm, I'm loving you. Right. But that's not what people look for. They look for that other stuff. So we're all attractive. What are they attracted to? They're attracted to supply. So how, whatever you, in supply can be how you look, it could be your status. It like if you, let's say you have a drive, a nice car, or you have a big job or you're famous or you come from a fancy family or you live in a great place. Status means different things, to different people. 
But if you're going to bring supply and that, like I said, might be status, it might be attractiveness. It might be that you're, you laugh at their jokes, whatever it might be that you tell them they're great. Whatever it is, if you're a supply, they're attracted to you. The, the, the challenge is, is supply looks different for every narcissistic person. So you might just be a super warm sweetie pie who just is like, tell me everything about you. Oh, that's so cool. You're so amazing. When I hear a person super enthusiastic, I'm like, this is person's narcissism. They're, they're going to be very attractive to a narcissistic person. That person, though, doesn't have to give up on being themselves. They just might be enthusiastic about people. It's recognizing the signs. So when they feel like, they, you know, they might attract them, but they can also, if you catch it early enough, it's pretty easy to walk away. It's like canceling an airplane ticket. You do it in the first 24 hours, you get your money back. Dr. Romani, this has been awesome. I wanted to thank you so much for your time. I think people are going to want to connect with you. They're going to want to buy the book. If, if people want to do that, if they want to connect with you, if they want to get the book, where's the best place to do that? You can pre-order the book anywhere. So go out there, please pre-order it. Um, you can also find me on my website, drromany.com. You can find me on YouTube. We have new content that comes out every day. We also have a healing program for people who are coming out of or healing from narcissistic relationships. It's a bit more of a deeper dive, a little bit more intense. And so you can go find that information on my website. You can find me on all social media at Dr. Romany. And so there's lots of places to find me. I have other books too, and that's all on my webpage as well. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And um, I really think my audience is going to love this one. So thanks again. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much.